Welcome to Lady Killers, a podcast about female serial killers. I am your host, Abraham Archambo. Let's go dig up some bodies. of Lady Killers. I'm Abraham. It is good to have you here. Good to be back for another episode. Uh, just doing this quickly while uh, while I'm uh, getting abused by the heat here up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, trying to hide out before it gets too hot today and uh, get this done for you today. You know, temperatures around here have been up uh, over 100 for the past few days and it's Getting kind of old, getting kind of sick of it. Uh, pretty rare for these parts, so we're not as prepared as for this heat as some other locations around the country are. So uh, we're we're getting through it, and I think we have a couple more days of it before we get a cool down again. But uh, it is causing everyone to flock out to those lakes, rivers, and the ocean. And uh, just hope you're all staying safe out there, and you are trying to to social distance whenever you can while you're going out there to, to stay cool, you know. we got to think of everybody else around us. But anyway, let's move on from uh, any anything like that right now to talk about. No news or anything for us to discuss, so let's jump in. And if you're all ready, let's just uh, get going on Lady Killers here. If you've never joined us here for an episode of Lady Killers, uh, this is a podcast about female killers in the United States. Every week we pick a new lady killer from one of our 50 states here in America. And the goal by the end of this is to have uh, an episode for every state in our union. And uh, we're working our way through that right now. We're in season one. We've got probably two or three more episodes of this season. And then I will take a break for a little bit while I start to homeschool my children, which beginning in next month is when that will begin. So... I need to feel that out, see how busy I'm going to be trying to to juggle that with everything else. And uh, I'll try to keep researching new lady killers. And then uh, hopefully we'll be back in a little bit for season two. And we'll just jump right back into that. After we go through all those 50 states in America, I would love to start branching out into the rest of the world. Um, You thought America had some sadistic women. Just wait and see what the rest of the world has in store for us. And before we begin here, as I do with most episodes, uh, I know I've probably skipped it on a couple, but I do want to let you all know that the following episode is graphic in nature. It involves murder as well as sexual abuse towards children. So, I mean, this is a true, true crime podcast. That's why you're here, so you probably already knew that you're going to be listening to some explicit material, but I thought I'd just tell you that anyway, so now you've been warned. Now, on to some murder. Our lady killer for this week left her deadly mark on the state of North Carolina. Please welcome to the stage Margie Velma Bullard, or as she would most 
likely be known as Velma Barfield. Margie Velma Bullard, who later would become Velma Barfield, was born October 29, 1932, in rural South Carolina to Murphy and Lily Bullard. This was their second child and their first daughter. There was no town or city listed as where she was actually born, um, but it was known that Velma and her family grew up in a little unpainted shack in rural South Carolina. Uh, the, the house sat on a farm that had neither electricity nor running water. And to top that off, they didn't even own their own outhouse, which was pretty standard for everybody back on the farms in those days. So if they didn't even have an outhouse, then they were roughing it. It was pretty tough for them back then. They had to resort to using chamber pots and the trees behind their house to do their, quote, necessary business, as it was so cutely described at the time. Uh, to put it mildly, they were dirt poor. And this was during the Great Depression, right in the heat of it all. And they were worse off than most people during the Great Depression. And that was terrible because that was about 25% of the world's population was unemployed, um, which is high. And to be poorer than most people during that time, it just it had to be horrible. And it had to be a terrible upbringing for Velma, something hard to deal with. And Murphy, her father, he was trying to be the breadwinner. He was trying to take care of everybody, all, everyone that lived in that little tiny shack, uh, which was actually owned by Murphy's parents, and they also lived with the family in that house, along with Murphy's sister, Susan Ella, who was disabled due to the effects of polio. So her arm and leg had been shriveled up because of that disease. And... Um, like I said, this was during the Great Depression, so it made it extremely difficult for Murphy to get out there and find adequate work to support his family. On that little farm where they lived, Murphy grew small quantities of cotton and tobacco, but that just didn't nearly bring in enough money to pay for everything. And so it, you know, Murphy always found himself searching frantically for work. Finally, the local sawmill owner, Clarence Bunch, Put out an ad for loggers that were needed so murphy approached clarence for work and he was brought on to work for him as a logger so this blessing allowed murphy to move his entire family out of that little shack that he shared with his parents into another tiny house but you know at least it was closer to town and closer to his job that tiny home closer to town eventually it wasn't cutting it either for their ever-growing family uh, a total of nine children would eventually be born into their family so they soon found that it just they couldn't cut it, and so they had to move back in with Murphy's parents after he secured a better job at a textile mill in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is just over the border from South Carolina. In less than a year, both of Mur Murphy's parents would pass away. And this would leave Murphy as king of the castle. At least, that's what he thought in his mind. According to reports, Murphy Bullard was basically the typical patriarchal stereotype he ruled the roost and his wife lily was the ever submissive wife he was a hardcore alcoholic who was easily roused to anger whenever anything didn't go his way or as he said the children in that house found themselves rubbing their backsides quite frequently as murphy loved to swing that belt whenever things didn't always go his way the belt 
leather strap, as he called it, would come out. The one thing that would really set off Murphy was a kid that just had a smart mouth and they were just too smart for their own good. Unfortunately for him, all three of his children at that time were smart asses and they loved to talk back to their father. That's funny because this story is starting to sound a little like uh, my life story. If you take out the whole lady killer aspect of it all. Their eldest child, their son Olive, was always complaining that Velma didn't get the same amount of abuse as him. And this caused a huge rift between those two siblings. Olive claimed that Velma got all the father's attention and she was protected by him at all times. Velma, on the other hand, would have told you a different story, as she claimed her father beat her relentlessly and furiously to the point of exhaustion. From a young age, Velma knew her mother was a submissive woman to her husband, Murphy. She didn't agree with that. Uh, she felt her mom should have stood up more for herself. Uh, his loud mouth just never seemed to shut up, and he was always looking for a fight. Being drunk most of the time didn't help either, and the children were usually the ones that suffered through all this. So Velma held a grudge towards her own mother for not standing up for them or for herself. She was quoted as saying, quote, Mamas should love their children and stand up for them, and Mama never stood up for me or for any of us, end quote. So there she is, you know, at the end of a ruthless beating Velma, she would be just as angry and resentful towards her own mother than she would towards her father, who was the aggressor. So right then, we already have a, a drunk, abusive father and a submissive mother who basically let the father do whatever he wanted to the kids. Just setting the, the scene here for where Velma was growing up. The marriage between Lily and Murphy was not a healthy relationship whatsoever. As I said, Murphy's alcoholism and anger issues were one thing. Now you throw in these tremendous bouts of jealousy that he had. And he was always thinking that his wife Lily was out there screwing around when actually he was the one that was stepping out on her. He was sleeping around town. So you combine all this stuff together and you have that dysfunctional home life for all these children growing up. So, you know, you see how... The environment Velma was growing up in, her mother Lily had to tiptoe around the house, trying not to upset the king of the castle, Murphy, or else she would see those fists heading her way as well. At the age of seven, in 1939, Velma began attending school for the first time, and she was known to be a very smart kid. She got really good grades, and she was well-liked by all of her teachers. She basically was thriving at school. And I think it could be attributed to the fact that this was her only respite from the terror of her home life. Uh, between those constant beatings, way too many people living under one roof, and her negative, ill-mannered mother, Velma just couldn't wait each day to get out of the house and get to school. That would soon change as Velma started to learn how hurtful the other children could be. Like I said before, this, uh, you know, this was... This would have been towards the end of the Great Depression when she started going to school. But they were dirt poor. Like I said, they were, they were worse off than most people during the Great Depression. So, you know, being dirt poor is not fun, especially when you're at the bottom poorest of them all. 
So Velma was berated and bullied because of the clothes that she wore to school. No doubt they were hand-me-downs or, you know, they had to be used, I'm sure. She probably had to wear some of her brother's clothes as well. And she also had just this meager lunch that she would bring to school. Usually it was one small piece of bread, and if she was lucky, she would get a little tiny piece of meat to try to put together some sort of half-assed sandwich. And so, um, you know, she kind of got sick of being made fun of so much for her, her food and her clothes. She eventually would start hiding out from others to eat her lunch at school. A new hobby also emerged for Velma. She quickly learned how brutal the life of a poor person can be. So this new hobby would be her stealing coins from her father's pockets at home. And at first, she said she was just stealing it to buy the candy from the candy store, which sat across the street from her school. And she realized uh, she needed probably more money to start buying some more things that interested her. So she graduated to stealing larger bills. One time, she stole $80 from a neighbor. But that would be the peak of her stealing, as Murphy beat her senseless upon learning of that theft. And his goal was to beat the stealing right out of little Velma, which he apparently did because no other issues of theft or any other crimes, for that matter, arose during that time after that beating. Not yet, anyway. After all, this is Lady Killers. So Velma's home life was full of hard work and hard chores as well. Living on a farm isn't easy, and it really didn't matter whether she was a girl or not. She was going to have to bust her ass just like everybody else. And so fearing her father's fists and his leather strap, she kept her head down and she did what she was told. Slowly, a resentment began to grow deep inside of Velma towards her father and her mother, and as well as the public who seemed to always berate her and put her down and talk down to her. She would tell people later that she felt like her parents only wanted her for the work that she could do around the house and around the farm. She said, quote, I always felt that they just really wanted me to be a slave, end quote. She was worked to the bone and beat, not unlike some of the slaves of the past. So in her mind, she was this kid growing up. All she was good for was to do the hard work around the house and around the farm that her parents didn't want to do, and they forced her to do it. Apparently, whenever Murphy wasn't wasted out of his mind, he actually could be a loving father to his children. He would put together pickup baseball games for his kids to play, as well as some of the other kids that are around the area that they wanted to try their hand out at baseball, so they would join in on these games that the father would put together. Of course, Velma was the only girl playing against all these other boys, but she held her own at shortstop. That was her position, and uh, she loved to play it, and she excelled at it. She also loved to go swimming at the local pond, which brought her immense joy. But most importantly, just like when she would go to school, this was another reprieve from her horrid home life. As with many children who constantly seek out the attention from their parents, and despite the horrors that rained down on them, Velma still loved her daddy, and she loved to be seen as daddy's little girl. She once told a story about a time where her and her father were strolling down the streets of Fayetteville when she spied a lovely flowery dress in the window of a shop. Murphy saw how much she admired that dress, and he immediately rushed into the store to buy it for her. See, he could be a nice guy at times. But that's until a little bit later in her life when 
he would sneak into her room, and he would seek out more than simple affections in her dark bedroom at night. Velma told a reporter from the Village Voice that her father used to touch her inappropriately at night, but at the time she said she was unsure what it meant. She was pretty confused. She said she wasn't sure if it was meant to be sexual or not. She wasn't entirely sure what he was doing at the time. Uh, eventually he did graduate to rape, she said, and she knew that that was 100% wrong, and she knew it was meant to be sexual, and... Of course, her brothers and sisters denied that allegation, even though Velma said that her father would sneak in to, uh, to rape her and abuse her. She said she, that he did it to her other sisters as well. Every single one of them denied it. They claimed no such thing ever occurred in that house, and they think, they think she was just doing it because she was a master manipulator early on and a really good liar. So anything she, she said should have been taken with a grain of salt is what they basically said especially a lie about her father raping her which they claim she did that just to you know play on the sympathies of others try to get uh you know some sympathy anywhere she could since she wasn't getting it at home or at school anywhere else but they all claim that none of that ever happened it was all just in her mind something she was making up but by 1945 Murphy Bullard had grown tired of working at the mill, and he wanted to return to his true calling in life, what he thought was his true calling in life, which was farming. He wasn't that great at it, and that pipe dream only lasted about a year when he discovered that he just couldn't hack it as a farmer. Uh, he couldn't bring in enough money to support the huge litter of kids that Lily kept shooting out, so he returned to the mill work to help supplement his income. That would also only last a short time, Murphy decided he couldn't hack it there either, so they, he packed up the family and they moved to Red Springs. And that's a town about 40 miles southwest of Fayetteville in North Carolina. And there he would start working at the textile plant, and that's where Velma began her high school career. So by this time, Velma was struggling in school. She wasn't doing as well as she, she did in elementary school. Uh, she wasn't the whiz that she once was. And one thing she did do is fall in love with basketball. And that's an activity that allowed her to work off all this excess energy she had racing through her body. And she really took to the sport. She loved it. She was really good at it. And her school actually had a girls team that she could play on. So it all worked out. Things seemed to be going real well for Velma. She was having a great time playing basketball until her mother demanded that she quit. Because Lily at home had just popped out a set of twins and she really needed some help around the house taking care of them. So she made Velma quit the basketball team and come help with the twins, which completely devastated Velma. There's always a silver lining, though, because Velma had met a boy named Thomas Burke. Murphy, her father, did not approve of this courtship. He demanded that it stop immediately and wait until she was at least 16 years old. So the following year, when Velma turned 16, she's like, here I am, 16, ready to start dating. And then Murphy changed his mind and said she would never date, ever, in his household. But Velma used her manipulative nature and convinced her father to let her date Thomas. But under the conditions of, they always had to go out on double dates, and she had to be back by 10 o'clock at night. She definitely obeyed Murphy's rules during all this, because that was the only time she knew she was going to get a spend with Thomas, this new boy in her life. If it was going to be outside of school, that's, she had to follow those rules. 
Uh, it was also the only way she could avoid her father's wrath, which rained down upon anyone who ever dared to disobey him. The following year, Thomas proposed to Velma, who was only 17 years old at the time. And of course, this caused a huge rift between her and her father. And her father broke down in tears when he heard about the news. And Velma, would, later, she would say that it was so odd because she had never seen her father, who was supposedly this masculine, manly man. She had never seen him break down and cry before. So she knew it was serious. She knew he had some sort of feelings and emotions towards this marriage. And any, anyway, you know, Thomas and Velma got married, regardless of what Murphy thought. And they both dropped out of high school to begin their new life together. The newlyweds moved closer to Fayetteville, to the town of Parkton, North Carolina. And this is where Thomas would hold a just odd job after odd job, which seemed to happen a lot back in that time after the Great Depression. Uh, Velma worked briefly at a drugstore, um, but she soon had to quit that job because her husband didn't like a woman working outside the house. She had one, one place in life, and that was to be at home, cooking and cleaning and getting ready to have some children. I'm going to go ahead and raise the first red flag in the marriage right now. Um, I mean, I know women still have it pretty rough these days, but can you imagine back then not even being able to allow, be allowed to work outside the home? I mean, because your husband forbids it. He tells you you can't even go outside to work. I mean, I don't think anybody would put up with that shit today. Hopefully people don't have to put up with that today, but... Uh, I mean, this is America, so I'm assuming it's still happening, but uh, that's the one thing Velma had to deal with, is a husband that said, you cannot go outside to work. So, she did what she thought a woman was supposed to do at the time, and on December 15th, 1951, Velma gave birth to her first child, Ronald. Not long after, on September 3rd, 1953, Ronald's sister, Kim, would also enter the world, and this is something that Velma was just great at. She was great at being a mother. She loved it. She loved being the mother. She loved taking care of the kids. I mean, she didn't have much choice in the matter since her husband Thomas made her stay at home all the time, but uh, she said she loved it. She adored it, and she just loved being the protector of those two children. She never wanted them out of her sight, and she wanted them to grow up, you know, Christian, so she would take them to the church every Sunday, and, you know, by the time they entered school, Velma was still right there to make sure they got to school okay. So it seems like, you know, she was raised with a mother that didn't really protect her. And I think she was trying to give back, you know. She wanted to, to show everybody she that, you know, she could be a real good mother. She could be better than her mother was to her. So she was always there, you know. It was known that she was always there at the school with her kids. She was known to be a smother, you know as they call it these days, um, but she was still very loving about it all, and she was always volunteering for all the, the field trips they would go on at the school. She was a big part of the school, apparently, and she was a welcoming presence whenever she was around. All the other kids uh, at the school, when it was time for one of these trips, they would always request to be in Velma's group because she was the most fun, and they wanted to be with her. In 1963, as things were progressing perfectly for this small family, Velma started to have some medical issues, and she had to wind up having a hysterectomy. 
Velma, at the time, she seemed to be fine with this because she said her and Thomas had already decided they didn't want any more kids. Apparently, according to her husband, though, that was not entirely true. She became more depressed and she lashed out more at Thomas at just the littlest of things at this time. She also started to get in her head that, you know, since she couldn't provide another child for her husband, that maybe Thomas would step out on her, start seeing someone else, and maybe find a woman that could bring another human life into the world. This also was the time that started Velma's physical problems. After the hysterectomy, she really started to experience severe lower back pain, and she just couldn't handle that anymore. Thomas joined the JCs at this time, and he was gone most of the nights, leaving Velma alone with the kids. And the, the JCs, it's an organization that, it was for younger men in the, in the community uh, to get together, meet with one another, and it was designed to help them become better leaders in their community. So this is something Thomas started to do, but this just set Velma's brain going a mile a minute. Was he really going to the JCs at night, or was he secretly meeting up with another woman? She couldn't figure it out, but it was also during this time that Velma noticed Thomas was also becoming a drinker. And that's something that Velma was just completely, totally against because of her father, who was a raging alcoholic. And she soon discovered that Thomas was going out for beers with some of his buddies after their JC meetings. And so this issue with the alcohol is the biggest problem in their marriage. And it would basically, it, it would be the focus of their marriage and everything that they fought over pretty much on a daily basis. One dark night in 1965, Thomas was involved in a car accident. And he, he got a real bad concussion during this. And uh, from that point on, he would have terrible headaches. For the rest of his life, basically. Velma, of course, accused him of drunk driving. You know, that's what caused the whole accident. He claimed it was that he had just simply fallen asleep. And she didn't believe it, so she continued just nagging him about his alcohol consumption. And that was something Thomas would always resent, that she would always attack him over alcohol. And these, you know, these they started out as verbal fights... And they would turn to uh, near violence whenever Velma would smell liquor on his breath. She would go nuts and start attacking him. And this would cause the children to go run and hide. And they were fearful of what their father was going to do to their mother. Because they knew how men settled their problems with their wives back in those days. So they were pretty worried for their mother. Um, through it all though, they said Thomas never laid one finger on Velma. Thomas was finally arrested for drunk driving in 1967, and that would cause him to lose his license along with his job. So he would sit at home all day just wallowing away in his sorrows. He would just get wasted day in, day out, and he's a deep depression set in. The children could see it, and so they, they ceased inviting friends over to the house because they were so ashamed of their father, and they didn't want their friends to see the situation they lived in with this this drunk man always stumbling around and uh, embarrassing them. They didn't want any part of that. And Velma, she couldn't handle it either. And she was slowly wasting away in front of everyone. Uh, apparently she stopped eating. And her weight dipped way down and she became pretty frail and, and real weak. And one day Ronald arrived home to find his mother Velma passed out on the floor. She had fainted at some point 
through that day, most likely from not eating because it's she never ate apparently. And so Ronald convinced his mother to go to the doctor, and that is where she found herself being prescribed Librium, which is a mild tranquilizer. But that would begin her descent into drug addiction. Velma did what uh, many people called uh, doctor shopping. I had never heard that particular term, but after I looked it up, I know exactly what it is. It's basically where you go to your first doctor, you describe all your symptoms, all your problems, and they will prescribe you with a drug that will help you in your situation. You then go to another doctor... And when they ask you if you're on any other medication or if you've seen any other doctors, you tell them no. That you're the first person I've seen. So they, you know, they prescribe you another drug. And then you go to the third doctor and you do the same and so on and so forth. I've known people to do that in the past and it is extremely dangerous. It's not recommended at all to get so many different drugs, especially if you're combining them. You don't, you don't know what's going to happen. You shouldn't try to be your own doctor sometimes, you know. You should leave it up to the professionals to tell you, you know. Because when you combine all those drugs, one wrong move and you're done with, you know. And it's actually, it's happening quite a bit today as people increasingly are self-medicating. So it's something you really got to be careful out there. Uh, but it's called doctor shopping, which is something I didn't know, but now I do. So... That's what Velma was doing. She had about four or five prescriptions at one time. Sometimes she was mixing them. Other times, you know, she was following proper dosages and that sort of thing. But I think for the most part, she was she was mixing all these different drugs together. And then when you would bring her together with Thomas, this alcoholic, you know, and Velma, who was a teetotaler, you know, she would just constantly nag him, tell him to quit drinking, you know. Even though she had slowly become a drug addict, you know, in her adult mind, she didn't see the correlations between alcohol abuse and drug abuse. Um, the children surely saw it, and they grew increasingly fearful of their mother because they would witness her on so many occasions groggy, you know, attempting to walk across the room, and she couldn't do it without stumbling and tripping, and she could barely talk in a normal fashion anymore. And the children said she actually resembled a drunk person on many occasions, which is something that she despised. So, you know, she had actually become the monster that she so hated seeing in her husband, Thomas. On April 4th, 1969, Velma and Thomas had another one of their epic, you know, battles over alcohol consumption. And he fought back with her out of control drug use and all this arguing just back and forth, back and forth. While he's just sitting there pounding the booze and uh, he finally drank enough to where he passed out, went into the bedroom and, and laid on the bed and uh, the kids were away at the time and so Velma all alone, she just decided that she's going to go out to the laundromat and do some laundry until Thomas sobered up and she could return home and maybe they could work it out. But uh, while they were all gone away from the home, somehow the house caught fire raged on and burned the entire place to the ground while Thomas Burke was still inside the home. Unfortunately, he would turn to ashes along with everything else in that home. He just he couldn't make it out of the inferno, and his death was chalked up to smoke inhalation. The next couple of months were spent in a deep depression for Velma. Uh, she was 
soon roused out of this depression when she discovered her son Ronald was finally graduating from high school, but he was graduating with honors and he was going to be giving the speech at the uh, closing ceremony. And uh, so Velma attended that and was in heaven basically the whole time because Ronald was up there just paying tribute to his mother basically through his whole speech. He talked about what a great mother she was and all of his great qualities came from her. The only reason that he was graduating with honors was because of her and she just sat there in tears as he just went on and on and on about how great she was and she just sat there beaming as others stared at her looking on with jealousy and she was just so fortunate to have this great son in her life. But that moment would only be just that, a moment. Because not long after graduation, another fire broke out in Velma's new home, and this completely destroyed everything inside and out again. This would force Velma to move back in with her parents, Murphy and Lily, along with her children. And during this whole time, Velma had started dating a new man by the name of Jennings Barfield, which is the, the name that she would take and keep for the rest of her life. He was already retired due to the many health problems that he was suffering from, and among these afflictions were heart disease, emphysema, and diabetes. Jennings had also recently lost his wife, and so this is probably what brought the two together. You know, grief and death brings people together a lot of the times. Both of them were probably needing some comfort and, and consoling during this time of grief, so I think naturally they gravitated towards each other, and on August 23rd, 1970, they were married. And so Velma moved in with Jennings and his daughter from that previous marriage, and they started their new life together in Fayetteville, North Carolina. But poor Mr. Barfield would soon find out that Velma was not the perfect Christian he thought she was. She was, in fact, a pill popper. And during their courtship, this whole notion of her popping pills never came up. He never thought anything of it. Every time he saw her, she was fine, but uh, once they actually got married and they had to be in each other's company day in and day out, Jennings soon caught on to the fact that Velma was extremely addicted to the medication. One day he came home and Velma was barely coherent. She was nodding off, she was in and out of consciousness, and it freaked him out, so he rushed her to the hospital. And this is where Jennings would learn about Velma's addiction to these medications. The doctor told him that she had suffered an overdose. And so this caused Jennings to question who he had even married in the first place. They soon separated for a brief time while Vel Velma went and promised she was going to get clean. She was getting off these pills forever so they could continue on in this, this marriage and make it work. But during this separation time, both Jennings and Velma, they were telling their friends and family left and right, how they knew they had made a mistake by getting married. Um, they just didn't want to have to go through the whole divorce process. And so eventually they did get back together, but Velma broke her word and she was immediately back on the pills and had another overdose in the process, which sent her right back to the emergency room. And obviously it got Jennings thinking about divorce yet again and who exactly did he marry, that sort of thing. And it basically became a situation where they both wanted out of the marriage. 
they didn't want to be married anymore, but they were waiting for the other person to make the first move, Velma wouldn't need to pursue the divorce any further when Jennings Barfield, her second husband, died suddenly on March 21st, 1971 from an apparent heart attack. And this didn't raise any suspicions at the time because Jennings, you know, he suffered from heart trouble and diabetes, other issues, you know, so nobody thought anything about it. They just, they assumed, you know, heart failure. And for Velma, that would send her into a terrible tailspin. She upped up her prescription drug intake and sometimes she would have three doctors at a time prescribing her drugs. So, you know... Three different doctors, maybe two prescriptions at a time. She might have six different pills in her system all at the same time, you know. And she said that after her second husband's death, she felt, quote, emptier and more depressed than ever, end quote. She tried to maintain employment at a local department store, uh, which was increasingly becoming more difficult for her. Her boss seemed to have some sort of heart, and he just couldn't fire someone who he saw suffering so much. So, you know, he moved her back to the stock room, maybe thinking if he got her out of the view of public, she might be able to work a little bit better because she was quickly becoming a huge problem for everyone around her. All the other employees, you know, and her boss, they just, they were getting tired of kind of covering for her and her mistakes. Also during this time, you know, the Vietnam War was raging on and Velma's son, Ronald, knew it was just a matter of time before he was going to be drafted to go fight in the Vietnam War. So instead of him waiting around for this hammer to drop, Ronald took himself down to the Army recruiting offices and enlisted. And he was sent to Fort Jackson in South Carolina for duty. This completely devastated Velma even further. She tried to beg her son to get out of his contract so she, you know he could come home and take care of his sick mother. And she even had some doctors write letters to the army to try and excuse Ronald from his duty, you know, stating that his mother was very sick and needed his help, but none of it worked, and Ronald was never excused from his, his army contract. And so these things just kept piling up for Velma, causing intense despair, and she was just she was running out of options. Not long after that, you guessed it, Velma's third house burned to the ground. She couldn't believe it. I mean, how? How is she so unlucky? How are all these terrible things happening around her? So Velma and her daughter, yet again, moved in with Murphy and Lily, just as Velma lost her job at that department store I had mentioned. Uh, she was showing up late almost every single day, and she was high as a kite whenever she would show up. And her boss, he just had enough. He couldn't handle doling out any more charity, you know. He just felt like if he kept doing that, he was just being taken advantage of by Velma. So he just decided to, to cut ties with her. And this just this sent her into a huge, huge tailspin. And so Velma, down and out, depressed, uh, was just beyond consoling. And as soon as she returned back to live with her parents, her father Murphy was diagnosed with lung cancer. And he would pass away shortly after at the age of 61. So here we go again, just piling up more, more problems and more trouble on Velma's shoulders. It would continue to pile up when her son Ronald decided to get married against Velma's wishes. And now she totally felt completely alone. She was depressed, suicidal, 
and she was just trying to wrap her head around why why are all these horrible things happening to me why 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 and then in March of 1972 Velma was finally arrested for forging prescriptions her drug abuse had finally caught up with her and although this at the time it was a blow to Velma you know maybe maybe it was a blessing in disguise maybe this is you know this is what was going to set her back on the straight path, get her clean, uh, because the judge only gave her a small fine and she was given a suspended sentence for the crime, so she was free. Also on top of this, you know, Ronald, her son, was finally discharged from the army and he never had to go fight in Vietnam at all, so, you know, things were really, really looking up for Velma and her family. She was clean, she had gotten away with forging prescriptions, basically with a with slap on the wrist, her son didn't have to go fight Vietnam, and she was she was ready to face the world again and start over. This particular episode uh, took a little bit longer, uh, so I split it into a two-parter. So that concludes part one of Velma Barfield. I want to thank you all for listening again. Uh, please visit our production website at 1129productions.com for all news and updates. Shoot us an email at theladykillerspod at gmail.com if you've got any questions or comments, or possibly you have a lady killer in mind that uh, you would like to hear on an upcoming episode, go ahead and shoot that email over and let us know. Uh, I also want to thank those of you who support this podcast. It is greatly appreciated. And that link to support us is up in the notes for this episode. But... This podcast will remain free. You know, whether anybody donates or supports at all, this is going to be a free podcast for you. That's it. Take care of each other out there. We just need to stick together. Just combine all of this love that we have inside of us. Combine it to combat all that hate that's ripping this country apart. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Keep those hands clean and those faces covered. And I will see you all next week. I will leave you with some words from the amazing writer Tennessee Williams. Quote, I think that hate is a thing, a feeling, that can only exist where there is no understanding. End quote. Stay safe, everyone. I'm Abraham. I hope you have sweet dreams.